Section 1 of The Crimson Circle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Crimson Circle by Edgar Wallace. Prologue. The Nail. It is a ponderable fact that had not the 29th of a certain September been the anniversary of Monsieur Victor Palion's birth, there would have been no Crimson Circle mystery. A dozen men, now dead, would in all probability be alive. And Thalia Drummond would certainly never have been described by a dispassionate inspector of police as a thief and the associate of thieves. Monsieur Palion entertained his three assistants to dinner at the Coq d'Or in the city of Toulouse, and the proceedings were both joyous and amiable. At three o'clock in the morning it dawned upon Monsieur Palion that the occasion of his visit to Toulouse was the execution of an English malefactor named Lightman. "'My children,' he said gravely but unsteadily, "'it is three hours, and the Red Lady has yet to be assembled.' So they adjourned to the place before the prison, where a trolley containing the essential parts of the guillotine had been waiting since midnight, and with a skill born of practice they erected the grisly thing, and fitted the knife into its proper slots. But even mechanical skill is not proof against the heady wines of southern France, and when they tried the knife it did not fall truly. "'I will arrange this.' said M. Pallion, and drove a nail into the frame at exactly the place where a nail should not have been driven. But he was getting flurried, for the soldiers had marched on to the ground. Four hours later, it was light enough for an enterprising photographer to snap the prisoner close at hand, they marched a man from the prison. Courage, murmured M. Pallion. Go to hell, said the victim now lying strapped upon the plank. Monsieur Pallion pulled a handle, and the knife fell as far as the nail. Three times he tried, and three times he failed, and then the indignant spectators broke through the military cordon, and the prisoner was taken back into the jail. Eleven years later, that nail killed many people. Chapter 1 the initiation. It was an hour when most respectable citizens were preparing for bed, and the upper windows of the big old-fashioned houses in the square showed patches of light against which the outlines of the leafless trees, bending and swaying under the urge of the gale, were silhouetted. A cold wind was sweeping up the river, and its outriders penetrated icily into the remotest and most sheltered places. The men who paced slowly by the high iron railings shivered, though he was warmly clad, for the unknown had chosen a rendezvous which seemed exposed to the full blast of the storm. The debris of the dead autumn whirled in fantastic circles about his feet. The twigs and leaves came rattling down from the trees which threw their long gaunt arms above him, and he looked enviously at the cheerful glow in the windows of a house where, did he but knock, he would be received as a welcome guest. The hour of eleven boomed out from a nearby clock, 
and the last stroke was reverberating when a car came swiftly and noiselessly into the square and halted abreast of him. The two headlamps burned dimly. Within the closed body there was no spark of light. After a moment's hesitation, the waiting man stepped to the car, opened the door, and got in. He could only guess the outline of the driver's figure in the seat ahead, and he felt a curious thumping of heart as he realized the terrific importance of the step he had taken. The car did not move, and the man in the driver's seat remained motionless. For a little time there was a dead silence, which was broken by the passenger. "'Well?' he asked nervously, almost irritably. "'Have you decided?' asked the driver. "'Should I be here if I hadn't?' demanded the passenger. "'Do you think I've come out of curiosity? What do you want of me? Tell me that, and I will tell you what I want of you.' "'I know what you want of me,' said the driver. His voice was muffled and indistinct, as one who spoke behind a veil. When the newcomer's eyes grew accustomed to the gloom, he detected the vague outline of the black silk cow which covered the driver's head. "'You are on the verge of bankruptcy,' the driver went on. "'You have used money which was not yours to use, and you are contemplating suicide.' and it is not your insolvency which makes you consider this way out. You have an enemy who has discovered something to your discredit, something which would bring you into the hands of the police. Three days ago you obtained from a firm of manufacturing chemists, a member of which is a friend of yours, a particularly deadly drug which cannot be obtained from a retail chemist. You have spent a week reading up poisons and their effects, and it is your intention, unless something turns up which will save you from ruin, to end your life either on Saturday or Sunday. I think it will be Sunday. He heard the man behind him gasp and laughed softly. Now, sir, said the driver, are you prepared for a consideration to act for me? "'What do you want me to do?' demanded the man behind him, shakily. "'I ask no more than that you should carry out my instructions. "'I will take care that you run no risks, and you are well paid. "'I am prepared at this moment to place in your hands a very large sum of money, "'which will enable you to meet your more pressing obligations. "'In return for this,' I shall want you to put into circulation all the money I send you, to make the necessary exchanges, to cover up the trail of bills and banknotes, the numbers of which are known to the police, to dispose of bonds which I cannot dispose of, and generally to act as my agent. He paused, adding significantly, and to pay on demand what I ask. The man behind him did not reply for some time, and then he asked, with a hint of petulance, What is the Crimson Circle? You, was the startling reply. I? gasped the man. You are of the Crimson Circle, said the other carefully. You have a hundred comrades, none of whom will ever be known to you none of whom 
will ever know you. And you? I know them all, said the driver. You agree? I agree, said the other, after a pause. The driver half turned in his seat and held out his hand. Take this, he said. This was a large bulky envelope, and the newly initiated member of the Crimson Circle thrust it into his pocket. And now get out, said the driver curtly, and the man obeyed without question. He slammed the door behind him and walked abreast of the driver. He was still curious as to his identity, and for his own salvation it was necessary that he should know the man who drove. Don't light your cigar here, said the driver, or I shall think that your smoking is really an excuse to strike a match. And remember this, my friend, that the man who knows me carries his knowledge to hell. Before the other could reply, the car moved on, and the man with the envelope stood watching its red taillight until it disappeared from view. He was shaking from head to foot, and when he did light the cigar, which his chattering teeth gripped, the flame of the match quivered tremulously. That is that, he said huskily, and crossed the road, to disappear in one of the side turnings. He was scarcely out of sight before a figure moved stealthily from the doorway of a dark house, and followed. It was the figure of a man tall and broad, and he walked with difficulty, for he was naturally short of breath. He had gone a hundred paces in his pursuit before he realized that he still held in his hand the ship's binoculars through which he had been watching. When he reached the main street, his quarry had vanished. He had expected as much and was not perturbed. He knew where to find him. But who was in the car? He had read the number and could trace its owner in the morning. Mr. Felix Marl grinned. Had he so much as guessed the character of the interview he had overlooked, he would not have been amused. Stronger men than he had grown stiff with fear at the menace of the Crimson Circle. Chapter 2 The Man Who Did Not Pay Philip Bazar paid and lived, for apparently the Crimson Circle kept faith. Jacques Rizzi, the banker, also paid, but in a panic. He died from natural causes a month later, having a weak heart. Benson, the railway lawyer, pooh-poohed the threat, and was found dead by the side of his private saloon. Mr. Derrick Yale, with his amazing gifts, ran down the colored man who had crept into Benson's private car and killed him before he threw the body from the window, and the colored man was hanged, without, however, revealing the identity of his employer. The police might sneer at Yale's psychometrical powers as they did, but within forty-eight hours he had led the police to the criminal's house at Yearside, and the dazed murderer had confessed. Following this tragedy, many men must have paid without reporting the matter to the police, for there was a long period during which no reference to the Crimson Circle found its way into the newspapers. And then, one morning, there came to the breakfast table of James Beardmore a square envelope containing a card, on which was stamped a crimson circle. "'You are interested in the melodrama of life, Jack. Read that.' James Stamford Beardmore tossed the message across the table to his son, and proceeded to open the next letter in the pile, which stood beside his plate. 
Jack retrieved the message from the floor, where it had fallen, and examined it with a little frown. It was a very ordinary letter-card, save that it bore no address. A big circle of crimson touched its four edges, and had the appearance of having been printed with a rubber stamp, for the ink was unevenly distributed. In the centre of the circle, written in printed characters, were the words, One hundred thousand represents only a small portion of your possessions. You will pay this in notes to a messenger I will send in response to an advertisement in the Tribune within the next twenty-four hours, stating the exact hour convenient to you. This is the final warning. There was no signature. Well, old Jim Beardmore looked up over his spectacles, and his eyes were smiling. The Crimson Circle, gasped his son. Jim Beardmore laughed aloud at the concern in the boy's voice. Yes, the Crimson Circle. I've had four of them. The young man stared at him. Four, he repeated. Good heavens, is that why Yale has been staying with us? Jim Beardmore smiled. That is a reason, he said. Of course, I knew that he was a detective, but I hadn't the slightest idea. Don't worry about this infernal circle, interrupted his father a little impatiently. I'm not scared of them. Friant is in terror of his life that he will be marked down, and I don't wonder. He and I have made a few enemies in our time. James Beardmore, with his hard, lined face and his stubbly grey beard, might have been mistaken for the grandfather of the good-looking young man who sat opposite to him. The Beardmore fortune had been painfully won. It had materialised from the wreckage of dreams, and had its beginnings in the privations, the dangers and the heartaches of a prospector's life. This man whom death had stalked on the waterless plains of the Kalahari, who had scraped in the mud of the Vale River for illusory diamonds, and thawed out his claim in the Klondike, had faced too many real dangers to be greatly disturbed by the threat of the Crimson Circle. For the moment his perturbation was based on a more tangible peril, not to himself, but to his son. "'I've got a whole lot of faith in your good sense, Jack,' he said, "'so don't be hurt by anything I'm going to say.' I've never interfered in your amusements or questioned your judgment, but do you think that you're being wise just now? Jack understood. You mean about Miss Drummond, father? The older man nodded. She's Froyan's secretary, began the youth. I know she is Froyan's secretary, said the other, and she's none the worse for that. But the point is, Jack, do you know anything more about her? The young man rolled his napkin deliberately. His face was red, and there was a queer set look about his jaw, which secretly amused Jim. "'I like her. She's a friend of mine. I've never made love to her, if that is what you mean, Dad, and I rather think our friendship would be at an end if I did.' Jim nodded. He had said all that was necessary, and now he took up a more bulky envelope and looked at it curiously. Jack saw that it bore French postage stamps and wondered who was the correspondent. Tearing open the flap, the old man took out a pad of correspondence, which included yet another envelope, heavily sealed. He read the superscription, and his nose wrinkled. Ugh, he said, and put the envelope down and opened. He glanced through the remainder of the correspondence, then looked across at his son. Never trust a man, or woman, 
until you know the worst of them, he said. I've got a man coming to see me today who is a respectable member of society. He has a record as black as my hat, and yet I'm going to do business with him. I know the worst. Jack laughed. Further conversation was interrupted by the arrival of their guest. Good morning, Yale. Did you sleep well? asked the old man. Ring for some more coffee, Jack. Derek Yale's visit had been an unmixed pleasure to Jack Beardmore. He was at the age when romance had its full appeal, and the companionship of the most commonplace detective would have brought him a peculiar joy. But the glamour which surrounded Yale was the glamour of the supernatural. This man had unusual and peculiar qualities which made him unique. The delicate, aesthetic face, the grave mystery of his eyes, the very gesture of his long, sensitive hands were part of his uniqueness. "'I never sleep,' he said good-humouredly, as he unrolled his serviette. He held the silver napkin ring for a second between his two fingers, and James Beardmore watched him with amusement. As for Jack, his eager admiration was unconcealed. "'Well?' asked the old man. "'Who handled this last has had very bad news. Some near relation is desperately ill.' Beardmore nodded. "'Jane Higgins was the servant who laid the table,' he said. "'She had a letter this morning saying that her mother was dying.' Jack gasped. "'And you felt that in the serviette ring?' he asked in amazement. "'How do you get that impression, Mr. Yale?' Derek Yale shook his head. "'I don't attempt to explain,' he said quietly. "'All that I know is that the moment I took up my serviette, I had a sensation of profound and poignant sorrow. It is weird, isn't it? But how did you know about her mother? I traced it somehow, said the other, almost brusquely. It is a matter of deduction. Have you any news, Mr. Beardmore? For answer, Jim handed him the card he had received that morning. Yale read the message, then weighed the card on the palm of his white hand. Posted by a sailor, he said, a man who has been in prison and has recently lost a great deal of money. Jim Beardmore laughed. Which I shall certainly not replace, he said, rising from the table. Do you take these warnings seriously? I take them very seriously, said Derek in his quiet way, so seriously that I do not advise you to leave this house except in my company. The Crimson Circle he went on, arresting Beardmore's indignant protest with a characteristic gesture, is, I admit, vulgarly melodramatic in its operations, but it will be no solace to your heirs to learn that you have died theatrically. Jim Beardmore was silent for a time, and his son regarded him anxiously. "'Why don't you go abroad, father?' he asked, and the old man snapped round on him. "'Go abroad, be damned!' he roared. Run away from a cheap black hand gang? I'll see them. He did not mention their destination, but they could guess. End of section one.